Uh, Mark chapter 3. We're going to back up just a little bit uh, to get a running start at verse 28. So Mark chapter 3. Let's pray and then uh, we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Be with our worship leaders. Grant them health. uh, Restore them. Lord, help them to um, be well and be able to be amongst us uh, as soon as possible. Lord, bless us as we um, open our hearts and open your word that we would hear from you and be led by you be uh, fed and changed and strengthened by you we pray in jesus name amen amen so um you'll recall back to verse 20 uh, the multitude came together so that they could not so much as eat bread uh, when his own people heard about it uh, about this they went out to lay hold of him they said he's out of his mind uh, and this is specifically referring to mary and uh, jesus half-brothers and half-sisters that have Mary and Joseph's children that have come to collect Jesus because they think he's out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said he he has Beelzebub and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. Uh, so the, the, the work that he's doing, and I, that's very significant to where we're going in verse 28. The work that he's doing, you know, he does by demonic power. So he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? So this is actually, um, you know, it's an example. It is a parable, but more, this is just like a common sense thing that he puts forward. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. You know, he, he specifically says that if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Some of us know uh, what that is like when, when a home and a marriage is uh, divided and there's that great conflict and how there's no stability. And if Satan has risen up against uh, himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. And we talked about <clears throat> demonic possession and some of the specifics and how the demon goes out and goes through your scripture, your, your translation may say, uh, enters into the desert places. Uh, really, the original language says that the demon enters a, a spiritually dry state of existence. And, and that anxiety causes that demon to come back to the person, which it refers to, as, Jesus refers to as the house, finding the person, the house, swept and put in order. But unoccupied was the key point, the Holy Spirit. So cast the demon out, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't take possession, take occupancy of the person, the the temple of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit doesn't live in us, then yeah, clean the house up as much as you want. Your end result is going to be worse because seven like unto the first come back, possess the individual, and the end state is worse than the beginning. So I guess sermonette before verse 28 assuredly i say to you all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter but he who blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit so the scripture specifically defines the blasphemy as they're saying he has an unclean spirit. 
the work Jesus is doing is by the power of the devil. So we're back to that original subject and circumstance. Uh, there's lots of very specific occasion in Jesus' ministry where things like that transpire. Uh, they denounce and renounce Jesus in many different ways uh, throughout his ministry. You know, he's he's a, a drunkard and a glutton. You know, he hangs out with prostitutes. They get all these really terrible things to say directly and indirectly about Jesus. Jesus is classifying all of that as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because he's there presenting himself as the savior of the world. Many people, uh, especially when we're younger in the Lord, have a mindset that perhaps somehow they've done this. You know, some have even you know been involved in the occult, and uh, they go through specific rituals where they tell the person, "Okay, now that you've said and now that you've done these things." You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and they'll even quote to them this passage. Isn't that insidious? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they'll say, see, so now salvation can, and even if you are guilt-ridden and were wa- wanting to ever turn away from this and turn to the Lord, not possible for you. It's sealed. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and it's not available to you. Well, you know, it's said, um, uh, I don't mean to say it's said in a cavalier way, but sometimes pastors point out, and I hold this is absolutely true. If you're feeling guilty about it and overwhelmed and wanting you know, to somehow relieve yourself of any potential blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that you may have done, then I submit to you, you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit <laughs> because you, you have the conscience that is grieved over what you might possibly have done in your even potential relationship with the Lord. The person who is eternally condemned is not going to have that concern whatsoever. Their heart is seared. They are forever lost and they're gone. You know, so I go right to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, so <clears throat> the implication, right, following verses Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to deliver the world. The world was already condemned, and this is the condemnation that they have rejected Jesus. I'm paraphrasing. But the point is, you know, raise the question. Can you be forgiven of not accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior? Not if you don't repent, right? If, 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 if you reject Jesus Christ... That is an unforgivable sin. That's what they're doing right here. They're rejecting the salvation that Jesus is bringing. So, so, so what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is rejecting the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. That, that's how simple it is. You know, right? We, we were all forgiven of that because we were rejecting Jesus, rejecting Jesus knowingly or unknowingly, and we came to that moment where we said, okay, I need Jesus. And we asked for salvation and we were given that. If you stay in that rejection, which is where these guys are. And, and so I, I put it to all of us. That's, and, and I, I, not just for your assurance. Uh, you know, I would say you need to fashion this as a tool or as a weapon for the use of God. 
right? You can deliver people with this understanding. Right. You know, Christ doesn't reject anyone. It's it's we who reject Christ. And so in the process, that I submit, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. It isn't some special ritual. It isn't sacrificing a chicken over, you know, I don't know why they do all those weird things. It has nothing to do with some weird satanic ritual or method or practice. You know, at the time, sure, you were rejecting Jesus Christ. You can repent of that. There, there, there is only one, and Jesus makes a statement in the other Gospels, there is only one sin that will not be forgiven. Well, if there's only one, right, then it must be the rejection of Jesus Christ. Because we can say adamantly that the rejection of Jesus Christ, the, the permanent you know, rejection of Jesus Christ, is unforgivable. You, know, you don't get to enter the presence of the Lord and, you know, tell him off and still enter, uh, you know, his presence for eternity. You cannot reject his salvation and experience salvation. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So people love to argue with me about that. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, a lot of them take the position that our enemy would take. And they try to define all these different characteristics of behavior as being blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, good grief. I mean, you, you take their, you know, hyper-legalistic approach to things and who of us could be saved? We, we've all failed along the way. You know, we've all done terrible things in the process. So, uh, you know, if you want to debate with me about that, I'm wide open uh, to, uh, you know, input and insight into that. But what I discover in the scripture is that the one unforgivable sin is the rejection of Jesus Christ as the source of salvation. Verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came standing outside. They sent to him calling him. Now, <clears throat> the critics uh, want to insist, no, you know, Mary was a perpetual virgin and had no other children, and these are not, in fact, uh, Jesus' brothers and sisters. They are, in fact, his cousins. So they are relatives, but not family bloodline. Well, the original language is very accurate, right? When the, the scripture wants to refer to cousins, it refers to them as cousins. When it refers to brothers and sisters, it refers to brothers and sisters, just like we do. We don't generically say, you know, uh, this person is family. <laughs> to me, you know, this is my brother. This is my cousin. You know, we have those defining elements. So uh, doesn't the Greek language, and it's a very specific. So, you, you know, you're going to see some things, and I'll point out the next statement that Jesus makes about Mary, <clears throat> that Roman Catholicism uh, just does. It it does not have anything so very often. Uh, those poor people inside Roman Catholicism uh, are told, oh, things like, oh, well, that actually comes from the Apocrypha, or that actually comes from this other, you know, ancient thing. It doesn't at all. You know, these false traditions are just that. They, they come from false traditions. And um, they insist 
that there are uh, three elements which develop doctrine within their organization. And the last one is the Word of God, right? We, the last one. We, we, right, we hold to the Word of God in its supremacy in all things. So, so they, go, they go, number one, the Pope's teachings. That's, that, and they'll say that's canonized, right? Which implies it's equal to the Word of God. It supersedes the Word of God. And the second one is the traditions of the church. So whatever traditions uh, historically, look, there have been some weird traditions of Christianity that we quickly came to realize that is improper and the church abandoned along the way, right? You know, for instance, baptizing people in place of the dead. <laughs> people have already passed away. And oh, well, we, you know, well, Paul was actually referring to a pagan practice. He wasn't referring to a Christian practice when he said, why else are they baptized for the dead? He's referring to the pagans who carry out that practice, not Christianity. You know, the ignorant church didn't examine the word of God, didn't understand the background, and adopted briefly the practice of getting baptized for other people. You know, they accepted Christ, passed away, didn't get a chance to get baptized, you know, and so they, they do this weird thing of baptismal regeneration so, and nonsense. Point is, they, they hold to teaching of the Pope, traditions of the church, and then lastly, the Word of God, and they are in that order specifically because the Word of God it has to be subject, by their standard, has to be subject to the traditions of the church and the teaching of the Pope. So if the traditions of the church or the teaching of the Pope say things that are directly contradictory to the Word of God, they, they don't flinch at that. They, they, they go, yeah, of course, right. You know, the traditions are more authoritative than the Word. The teachings of the Pope are more authoritative than the Word. That's why, you guys, you see the nonsense going on right now that's going on. If you're not familiar with it, to this day, the, the church's title, the, the, I mistakenly refer to them as the church, the Roman Catholic institution's title for the Pope is the Vicar of Christ. Well, uh, vicar, uh, you have to sort of go through this lengthy explanation, right? If, if, if we were to use that title, um, if you had a mayor and he had a vice mayor, right, a uh, lieutenant mayor, whatever the title might be, if, if the mayor was, let's say, got in a car accident and they're medically completely incapacitated, they're in a coma, unable to communicate, unable to function, well, then they take the vice mayor and they make him vicar of mayor, that means, literally the title vicar means, he is the mayor, right? For the time that the mayor is not available or incapacitated, then the vicar of mayor is the mayor. He's not serving in the position of mayor. He's, nothing that he does can be overridden, right? He, he is the mayor for the time that the other mayor is incapacitated. Vicar of mayor. Vicar of Christ. He is Christ? That, okay, that, that's what we call antichrist, right? We think of antichrist as being opposed to Christ. That's not what that means at all. It means in replacement of Christ. The title itself that they give to the popes 
is Antichrist. It's in replacement of Christ, vicar of Christ. That's why when the Pope says, no, homosexual marriage is okay, th then they say, okay, the Pope said it. That overrides the word of God. The traditions of the church. So, so people say that I'm a Catholic basher, right? I, I absolutely am not a Catholic basher. What I am saying is the, that organization needs to repent, right? I mean, there's no question that there are some very wonderful, very sincere people inside the organization. But doctrinally and in their behavior, they need to repent of their very sinful teachings and practices and come to Christ, right? They, because they are presently, uh, according to the scripture, according to Jesus, they are presently alienated from him. So, you know, consider how the Lord might speak to you in those circumstances. Here, I bring it up because we're going to talk about Mary in just a moment. Here, mother, brothers, and, you know, sisters, we assume, came because the scripture always refers to them in plural. So there were at least, you know, uh, you know, two sisters that we're aware of and, and the brothers that the scripture records. So uh, they, they come, they're calling for him. The multitude was sitting around him. Verse 32, they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, listen, he already knows why they're there. They think he's crazy and they've come to carry him away to the funny farm. And Jesus knows that that they're, oh yeah, they're outside. Great. He answered them saying, who are my mother and my brothers? That is a, an open hand slap right across the face. Who are my mother and my uh, brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So <clears throat> when you get to the crucifixion, Jesus looks at Mary and John and says to Mary and to John, says to Mary, woman, behold your son, and says to John, behold your mother. Okay, And that is where the, the Roman Catholic institution seizes upon that statement and says that is where Jesus made Mary the mother of the church. Okay, totally false teaching. It's it's strictly from the traditions of the church. It's not supported by Scripture anywhere. Jesus contradicts that with the statement of "Call no man on earth or woman on earth your spiritual father." Right? You have one father, as he says in heaven, and Jesus the Christ is your teacher. You know, so right here, he, he renounces Mary from that position. What he's doing at the crucifixion is uh, Jewish responsibility. Eldest son was to care for his mother if her husband was deceased. We assume that Joseph is deceased. We haven't heard anything about him since the pregnancy, and in that statement is contained the Jewish tradition of transference, that John, Mary is now your mother, meaning she is your responsibility. You will need to care for her for the remainder of your days, is what he's saying. And it's interesting, too, because John was probably one of the youngest of Jesus' followers. He's, he's taking a young man who's going to be capable for some time of caring for his mother, and, and he knows the seriousness of the young man, 
you know, he knows his personal relationship, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. He says, you're going you're to take care of my mom. That's what he's saying. So this is a clarity of moment where we understand that Mary struggled with Jesus' ministry, right? Yes, uh, you know, blessed beyond measure, you know, above other women, uh, you know, her statements uh, in what is referred to as the Magnificat, where she's visiting Elizabeth and proclaims the magnificence of Jesus as her Savior. You know, she quotes the Old Testament. I, I forget what it is. I'm probably incorrect. It's something like 90 times in that statement. She, she has a very in-depth knowledge of uh, the Scripture based upon what we see there. So we should definitely venerate her, but worship her is inappropriate. And, and, and I don't just mean, you know, like in a mild way, like that, that, that's not entirely appropriate. I mean, in the sense of that's idolatry. Jesus Christ alone is the one we pray to. And it is misplaced uh, worship when you, when you pray to or worship anything else. Here, he renounces them because of what we just read. They think he's out of his mind. It isn't because he hates him. It isn't because he's rejecting them wholesale on that level that sometimes is family. It's a matter of you're not going to come here and stop the ministry uh, of the Lord and the fulfillment of what the Lord is doing in and through me. You know, the people who are actually my brothers and sisters and mother in the kingdom are the ones right here who are doing, present tense, doing the will of my father. And, you know, Jude and James and Mary all become people who are doing that, you know, after Jesus, especially after his resurrection. Uh, they, are, they are devout followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jude and James both uh, refer to themselves as bond servants of Jesus Christ. Dedicated followers. So, whoever does the will of uh, God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And again, he began to teach by the sea, always teaching. Great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. He got the opportunity to stand right here, where this uh, took place, at least within proximity, and uh, see where Jesus was. Uh, probably, you know, just about 15 feet out into the water as we see here. He taught them uh, many uh, parables and said to them in his teaching. So, Look, the parables are um, really significant in a lot of regards. And um, as we um, learn the parables um, properly, it, it gives us light and insight into the rest of the scripture. So we shouldn't take them... Uh, in, lightly or in, in you know in an inconsequential way and we definitely should not approach them uh, with our own interpretations there, there's very little room for that the, the parables want to portray and relay very specific things and from there they reach out into a lot of Christian doctrine and understanding. So, um, you know, some of the uh, 
scholars uh, that, that I trust uh, say that you, you shouldn't even teach the parables until you've been preaching the word of God for 30 years, that, that they're that weighty. Okay. Uh, when I started in the ministry uh, as a youth pastor and heard that for the first time, I thought, ah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so well taught and, you know, I'm just, I've been in Christian, I've just bowed no problem. I look back at the things I was teaching about the parables at that time and think I should have at least taken that a little more seriously and, and the things that are contained here because they really do interpret a great deal more of the scripture than just the parables. So Jesus even makes that statement. So he's teaching my parables, verse 3, listen. And that's the idea of, you know, almost like shout at that moment and slap your hands together, you know, like jar the crowd. Uh, you know, just, you know, hit the air horn once and, you know, once everybody's sort of jangled, like, okay, now pay attention is the attitude. Jesus wants the focus. Listen, focus, dial in. Behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, uh, we've all seen it, and especially inside Christianity, we sort of have this understanding, especially in these days, um, uh, tilling a row uh, and then planting seeds systematically was not done uh, like you know like it is today. Um, sometimes they would burn off a field uh, and let like the first rain occur, and then scatter seed and then till it back into the ground. But that's the process: is just big satchel full of grain and handfuls, and you're just flinging it hard, you know, in an arch and walking. And then they come back and they till that under. They fold the soil over into it. So this idea of sowing the seed is just that, you know, you really got to get that image of just the, like, repetitive, you know, showering of seed is, is uh, what's happening. And with that, as he's going to give explanation to, we really need to have that mindset that this is a major portion of our role. The, 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 the seed, which he's going to define as the word of God, needs to just be pouring off us and shooting out and being flung in you know, every direction as we move through life. And then God handles the remainder of the process, right? He provides the seed, and our job is just scatter. Scatter the seed. Don't, you don't have to sit and, you know... Poke and till and water and weed and you know all those other things. Just scatter the seed, and uh, then he, you know, does other. We we at times have roles, but but consider what's being said in this instance. Behold, a sower went out to sow. It happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wade's wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. He's going to give explanation, as I'm sure you're probably aware uh, here wayside is the hard packed pathway so th this is um the road through the middle of the field you know the ox and the cart and the travelers it could be the footpath but it's that sense of place of travel heavily packed down not 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 part of what is tilled at all this, this is, you know, pickaxe, jackhammer uh, type territory. Hard, hard ground is, is what's 
being described here. So the wayside, the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on the stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately sprang up because it had no depth of earth. Um, it's a little different than our blueberry fields, uh, but that might give you a sense. You know, Israel is stony. Uh, there are very fertile fields, but a lot of it is rock. And, uh, you know, you can see massive rock walls built everywhere, and you can see heaps of stones uh, where ground has been tilled for centuries as they have tilled the ground. They have brought rocks to one place and just been piling them up and getting them out of the ground. So, so this idea of the stony ground, all of these farmers in this time are like, oh yeah, you know, the, the stony ground. They're they're very familiar uh, with this whole idea. So uh, they they uh, sprang up. They fell on the stony ground. Not much earth immediately sprang up because it had no depth of earth. When the sun was up, it scorched, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on the good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, before we move into the explanation, that's the whole point, and he's going to explain that, of the parable. Is if you want to listen, you can listen. If you do not want to listen, then do not listen. There, there are those that say of these teachings and of these parables, oh, Jesus did these you know, these things and taught this way to keep it secret. If Jesus wanted to keep it secret, he just wouldn't have said anything. You know, he would have waited for an opportunity. To, you know, if he was trying to keep it from certain people, then, then he would have just waited until he was with the people he wanted to share with. He put it out so that it's the choice of the hearer. Um, that's, that's very important to remember. As you minister, and especially if you minister publicly, if people don't want to listen, um, it's not our job to make them listen. Okay, and I have observed in my oh, I was so zealous when I was uh, first come to the Lord, just crazy, radical about preaching everywhere that I just people just ran away from me. And um, I, I damaged relationships uh, by just, I know I am not going to stop, and you are going to hear. And it, it was all from a, a passionate, intense desire to see people know the Lord. Um, but um, I've learned over the years that there was also a tremendous distrust of God involved in that. You know, I had I had a personal sense that if I wasn't out there just forcibly injecting this into people's lives, then they weren't ever going to get it. And uh, I've learned over the years that um, to expend that much energy in prayer is way more effective. You know, you can break down barriers and get through to 
hard hearts in prayer, but just blasting the bark off from people um, is nowhere near as effective. In fact, I have no fruit from those efforts. None whatsoever. Um, I have, you know, I led people to Christ, but it was generally speaking the ones that surprised me, you know, that just, hey, I heard you're a Christian. Can you tell me about that? You know, and you lead them to Christ and think, oh, that was effortless. You know, and uh, you know, the Lord using even, you know, those stupid moments in our lives. So here we come to verse 10 when he uh, was alone, those around him uh, with the 12 asked him about the parable. He said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the knowledge, or excuse me, mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. And, you know, this is where they say, oh, you know, Jesus was trying to hide it. He, he spoke to all of them in parables. Okay. The difference is this group comes and asks. They have ears to hear. So they're coming and saying, ah, I can't just live with the story. You got to give me the explanation. I got to have more. And is that not class who we are and who we've been? Right. I mean, is that not the thing that's led us to this room? Right. Well, we were in a great crowd. Rewind days, weeks, months, and years back, and the parables were falling upon all of us. And we were the ones that said, What is that about? <laughs> I need to know more. And I need to know more. And I pushed through, and you pushed through, and you're still pushing through because you, your heart is not satisfied with just a story alighting upon your heart without explanation. Biblically speaking, you have to have uh, the completion of the thing. So it's given to you so that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing that they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven. That means quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Uh, again, not the idea that God is hiding it. He, uh, I guess it's kind of a little strange to say it that way, but um, that he's a gentleman. That he's not going to force himself upon anyone. If, if you want to know, then you can know. He, he presents the truth in such a way that if you want to choose to reject it, then you can. And at times he's very point, pointed. So here he said to them, verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Okay, so this is where we start to really... You know, get that understanding of Jesus is saying this is very expansive. I've given you this one, and if you don't understand this one, then how are you going to understand the rest? He's not just saying, man, you guys are dumb, aren't you? He's saying, no, by this, you will have an understanding of the others. So as he gives explanation, the things that he defines and explains here have explanation throughout all of the parables. The scholars refer to it as expositional constancy. So as something is explained, it remains consistently or constantly that way throughout. Okay, So we'll wade into it here. You're going to understand the others by this one. The sower 
sows the word. So now you know what the seed is, right? From Jesus' teaching, not from our guesstimation or our thoughts or what we might perceive. Jesus tells us it's the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So my first experience with this was um, immediately upon my conversion, um, a, an acquaintance came to me and all excited about my conversion to Christianity. We were hardcore criminal partiers. And uh, he, he's all excited about my conversion. And uh, his attitude is sort of like, me too. And uh, I'm going to a Bible study. Come with me. And I'm clueless. So I start going to the Bible studies with him. Well, long story short, he's taking me to Jehovah's Witness Bible studies. Okay. And um, it takes me not only because I've never experienced it before. It takes me some time to figure out this is different than Christianity. And then once I start figuring out this is different than Christianity, um, I, I spend too much time with them absorbing a bunch of what they're teaching. And it messes my brain up. And then I have to spend a whole bunch of time pulling away from everybody, Christianity and the witnesses. I, I mean, I, I stopped going to their studies and started going to a, a little Baptist church there in Keene, New Hampshire, but I was sort of isolating myself. Like, I don't know who to believe about what. And I, and I just, like, I studied things very um, fervently on my own because now I don't trust anybody. And I don't know who to believe about what. And the Lord delivered me about that. But in that process, as I was learning, that acquaintance kept coming back. And I'd say, no, no, you're, you're inaccurate about this or that. And let's look. And we, we would examine the scripture and he was like, oh, my gosh, I've never seen that before. And we would read and read. And, and he would literally, by the end of our time together, be like, wow, this is awesome. And I'm going to start going to church with you. And, and he'd leave. And I wouldn't see him. And he'd come back. And he's talking Jehovah's Witness teachings again. And I'm saying, wait a minute. Well, just the other day, we were in Hebrews. And we were looking at, you know, Jesus is God. And, and he's like, no, he's not. And what are you talking? I don't remember reading that with you. He he literally the, the enemy was stealing it out of his mind. He's coming back with no recollection of the passages that we read. You know what what how the Holy Spirit connected things for us as we were studying together. I was watching the seeds that were being planted being just devoured right out of his heart and out of his mind. And it ended up destroying him in the end. <clears throat> don't be, I mean, it's going to be heartbreaking, but don't be wildly, you know, agitated if you notice that and you see that, you know, you're, you're preaching and teaching somebody and then the next thing, you know, they're, they're like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. Just know that it is supernatural in a demonic way. And that the only thing that's going to conquer that is, the Lord himself, the Holy Spirit. You're not going to, from your, your intellect, you're not going to combat that. 
you're not going to cure it. <laughs> continue to scatter the seed. You know, don't misunderstand me, right? You just continue to preach the word and share with them. But if you come across those people where it just seemingly is being devoured right out of their heart and mind, there are cases where it can happen. Where the devil himself or you know, his minions are, are performing that work and robbing the seed from people's minds. This is the one by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These, likewise, are the ones stony, sown on stony ground. So he's systematically going through these explanations. Who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Now, it's been pointed out that the seed on the wayside doesn't take root. It doesn't go down at all into, right? These ones do go into. Right. It does go down in the process. So, it, you know, it's taken in, we might say, you know, the, when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness and they have uh, no root in themselves. And so endure only for a time afterward when tribulation or persecution arrives for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So, you know, they, they can't take root. Uh, there, there isn't anything there. And, you know, he's going to talk. There, there is a difference. He's going to talk about the cares of the world uh, and how that destroys the work and the efforts of the, the sower and the word, the seed. But here, this is different. Persecution because of the word, right? They receive it. Oh, hooray, I'm a Christian. And they go out the door to declare to the world, I went to church and I'm a Christian. And somebody just snarls at them and done. They, they, they dry right up. Their, their family, their friends, somebody attacks, somebody says something, you know, about, oh, you're not great. Now you're a Christian. You know, just some attack about the word. And they, they wither under that. They, they, they don't have any endurance under that kind of, of attack immediately they stumble now these are the ones sown among the thorns they are the ones who hear the word and the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful that is by and large a lot of what happens to christianity today more than anything, you know, yeah, the demonic, sure, you know, direct persecution because of faith, but more it is, you know, the, the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches and things, you know, uh, materialism and busyness and otherwise. Whenever I talk to uh, young converts, uh, I warn them that uh, there are going to be three things almost assuredly come into their life almost immediately that will destroy the word. And they are the false teachers, you know, Jehovah's witnesses, Mormons, you know, and, and I'll ask them, you know, have you, have you ever spoken to witnesses? Have you seen Mormons come to your house? You ever have that experience? And they'll almost always say, 
Never. You know, I know they're around, but I've never experienced them. And they'll come back to church that like, you won't believe what happened. You know, right, right. Yeah, they were on your doorstep, right? It is, it is demonic. There is a spiritual force behind that. So the false teachers, be they on, you know, uh, some health, wealth, and prosperity, uh, you know, network or, you know, teaching or the witnesses, Mormons, that, that nature, false teachers. Secondly, relationships. It's usually uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, relationship will destroy uh, the relationship with Christ. And interestingly enough, lastly, jobs work. You know, I just, you know, I, I was coming and I was, I was accepting guys. I was all excited. It was absolutely amazing. You know, but, but, uh, you know, they just gave me like 10 hours of overtime every week and I, I can't pass up that money. Uh, you know, Jesus specifically said, you know, <laughs> what would it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? You know, th there is an investment which is far more valuable, far more valuable than any earthly gain. And so many people fall. There's more even in what Jesus just said. But those three things very much stand out in the American body of Christ. is the false teachers and then the relationships and then work. Yes, work. You know, and a lot of people... You know, they go from like the party scene and, and incredibly irresponsible. They get saved, and now it's it's like a godly attribute to suddenly become a very responsible employee. So they're like, "Oh, I'm I'm doing a godly thing by taking on more hours." No, you, you do the godly thing and be, you know, you were a hedonistic, terrible employee, whether you recognize it or not. Um, be a good employee. But also prioritize your relationship with Christ. Do not neglect that for. Don't neglect your relationship with Christ for any of these things. And, and that's you know a, a good portion of what we see here. They they, they hear the word and they um, they they're immediately responsive. But you know the the cares of the world, whether the kids and the soccer program and the you know and I'm helping out with the thing and the stuff and you know i volunteered over at the cares of the world deceitfulness of riches i'm going to get to that later but you know this this work this overtime this job opportunity um it, it always freaks me out when somebody tells me i took a job in you know another state and it's just one benefits and you know they're going to give me a car and, they're, and i'll say where are you going to church and they're like oh, i we really don't know and I'll point out, do you, do you realize there are communities all over America that have no church in them at all? Like, like you could literally be headed to a spiritual wasteland. You know, I, I had friends that moved to Colorado uh, years ago, and they, they, they picked a church online, sight unseen, right, and made the decision to take the job based upon, and this church is... They got there, and that church was so flaked out, you know, and the next nearest church was an hour and 25 minutes away, right? They're, they're, they're isolated in the situation. It took them years. It took them almost a year to finally quit the church that was in town because it was so messed up, and now they're, they're literally making once a week, driving all the way over to that other church, which was a decent church, and eventually uh, they took another job. 
because they just couldn't handle the fact that their family is not being fed. The cares of life. That can take on lots of different forms. You know, Christ, your relationship with Christ needs to be the priority in your life. Uh, and so entering into, you know, the riches and the cares of the world, other things entering and choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. And that's a, that's a drag when, when you're just going through the motions with your faith and there's no fruitfulness. It's just, it's like you show up at church and you punch the clock and then you punch out and you go back to life. And then next week you show up and you punch the clock and that's all you're doing. That, 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 that'll make you so disheartened. You know, it's supposed to be an impassioned, fruitful, lively relationship with a you know, life-giving, life-producing uh, relationship with the Lord. Verse 20, these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. So don't look over at your neighbor and think, oh my goodness, look at everything they're doing in the faith. And I'm just over here doing this measly thing. Uh, are you scattering the seed and being fruitful for the Lord in your own person, in your relationships? Are you talking with people, sharing your faith? You know, are you out there with your faith? I mean, if you're just keeping it to yourself and literally being unfruitful, then, you know, be challenged by what we're reading and what we're saying here. You do need to produce, right? One needs to become two. <laughs> you know, your, your life needs to have a fruitfulness. Calvary Chapel had a thing uh, years ago, bumper sticker, that simply said, healthy sheep reproduce. You know, we need to see that fruit in our lives. Um, it may not be as fruitful as others, but we need to see a fruitfulness to the Lord uh, in, in what we are doing. So verse 21, also he said to them, we'll just go a little further. Uh, uh, he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Or is it not to be set on a lampstand? I know Jesus teaches this in different ways in other places. So, uh, you, you're really crazy if you put a lamp under a bed or under a basket, you know, oil lamp under wicker basket, you know, oil lamp, under thatched bed. Um, everybody's going to see the light eventually, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that will produce quite a blaze um, uh, in time. Uh, unfortunately, in those circumstances, it's during the blaze of destruction, right? The, 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 I, I've heard people sort of give that example and be like, so, you know, you can't contain it. Eventually it's going to, you know, make its way out. No, no, it can burn your life to the ground. You know, the, the lamp is meant to be set in a specific place and provide illumination and warmth and invite. You know, it attracts attention and draws to light is supposed to have that usefulness, you know, squelching it, hiding it. Putting it in improper places, very, very destructive. So there's nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So again, that same 
statement of, you don't want to listen, you don't have to listen. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. And whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Um, I had uh, an acquaintance, I hesitate to say friend in certain settings, because they weren't friends. Uh, I had an acquaintance uh, years ago who was living in the most heinous sin. And that's actually how I met him, was as his life was being blown up from sin. And so I come into this relationship from the perspective of trying to help restore and clean up the mess. And I'm kind of startled by the fact that, like, this person's extremely knowledgeable. I mean, their understanding of the word, their understanding of its application, the books that they've read, and, like, you know, it's, it gets really perplexing. Like, wow, you're, like, really schooled, and yet you got yourself into this mess? And um, not only does it turn out that that's what transpired there, as we move forward, that's what he's doing. He's developing a new relationship with his life, and the wreckage from the past is still in place, and he's constantly talking, hey, have you read this book? And I just picked up this. And have you ever noticed this in this passage? And he's all about these things. But you can tell right away, he's not applying any of this. He's not applying any of it. Well, it grows to the point of confrontation, you know, over years to where I finally just put my foot down and say, you're deceiving yourself. You're not truthful. You're full of it. I'm not being judgmental. But as a friend, I need to tell you, you're completely off base. You're not hitting the mark even remotely. You're dece- all you're doing with all this knowledge is deceiving yourself. You're living a completely sinful, ungodly lifestyle while simultaneously you're one of the most learned and most read people I've ever met. So until you get that figured out, I I don't even want to be around you anymore. You know, if if you value my relationship, then you need to quit this and, and get help and be sincere about your relationship with Christ. Don't see him for years. Years. Okay. And he's literally like, okay, fine. And gone. Right? Don't see him for years and get a phone call recently. And, you know, within minutes of having conversation, realize, oh, we're still in that same place. Nothing has changed. I say years, two decades. Right? The whole time I've been down here, same place, stuck right in the same rut. Always, always learning, right? Always learning, never coming to the knowledge, never making it. You, you know, you, you, him who has ears to hear, you want to apply these things, apply them. You know, you're going to use these things, you're going to be fruitful to the Lord, more will be given to you. Not going to, don't expect anything. Don't expect anything to come of that. This is really a, a very heartbreaking sort of sentiment that the Lord puts forward here in this situation. Now, uh, uh, here in 
verse 26, he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and should sleep by night, and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. And he himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. And when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So we'll, we'll end right there, but you know, just a, a little bit of thought in the process again. The word of God, right? The grain, the seed is the word of God. <clears throat> I, I sort of alluded to this in our study last week about how the word of God sometimes can feel very dry. People will say that I, I read and I just feel like I'm not getting anything out of it. To which I say, continue to read. <laughs> continue to put the word in. Um Here's something, and I'll I'll be confrontational. Uh, if 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 you take this as confrontational, it is okay. Uh, many people in the past oh five six years have come to me and said, um, "I try to read, but I I struggle to read. I have attention deficit disorder. I have dyslexia. I can't read. I, all these different things." Okay, uh, you know. I, I think that's an excuse. That's There's the confrontation. I think that's an excuse. But uh, there is no, there's no excuse for that. There are so many ways to get the word of God into your life now for free. So many different applications. What translation of the Bible do you like? You know, hunt around, find one, and then, you know, get a free one or I would say invest, purchase an audio version of it. You know, the word of promise is a dramatized version of the New King James Version that comes as an application. You can find it for free, but even if you can't invest in it, as it's being read to you and you're listening, and I'm talking world-renowned actors doing voice characterization, you're listening to the word of God being read, it, it literally goes through the highlighted words and you, and you can follow right along. So you can, even if you can't read it, you can just listen to it. You can be in the word every single day. And here, this is Jesus, right? The letters are read telling you if you'll put the seed in, it will grow. It will produce fruitfulness to the Lord. Oh, I don't see much happening right now. I've read and I've read and I've read and I've read and I just don't see things happening. Well, maybe it's all happening underground, <laughs> right? That seed has to get the moisture and it has to get the warmth and it has to germinate and begin the process and then write the shoot and then the blade and then the grain comes. You will. You have the promise of God's word that it will produce fruitfulness. There is absolutely no excuse for not being in the Word regularly. Okay, I have a practice, and I teach everyone who's new to the faith this thing, and I think I might have even shared it with us. Um, start in Proverbs. Right? There are 31 chapters. You can take a chapter. At first, don't even try to get out of Proverbs. Don't say, I finished Proverbs. There are 31 days. 
Just stay in Proverbs until you have an appetite for more. And then move out of Proverbs. Start by reading one chapter and do it by the day of the month. So today is the 22nd. You would have read Proverbs 22, right? Don't even read it with the attitude of, I've got to be deep. <laughs> I've got to just create a sermon out of this thing. Just read the whole chapter verse by verse. Ask the Lord to make things stand out. Begin with prayer. Read the chapter. Whatever stands out, dwell on that in the morning. Dwell on that. If it's a whole section, if it's the whole chapter, if it's one verse, dwell on it. And get that verse, that section, that portion that stood out to you, get it out again at noon. When you take your lunch break, get back in the word. This is meditation, which is where we get the word for chewing the cud, ruminating. Take it in, fully swallow it, bring it back up, right? Go over it again at noon. And then before you go to bed, same thing. That passage that stood out to you, get it out again. So you're ending your day in that. Don't, don't try to make some big journal about it. Set it aside. Tomorrow, the 23rd, you know, Proverbs chapter 23. Read the chapter, what stands out to you, morning, noon, and night. Next day, the chapter, what stands out to you, morning, noon, and night. And you develop a habit of, I'm in the word, morning, noon, and night. And then you can move on to, okay, you know, my recommendation is to then go to the book of John. And from there, go back to Genesis. So start in Proverbs, develop the appetite. Once you've got the appetite anchored, then move out into the word and let it become this insatiable appetite where you have to read, you have to glean, you have to be nurtured by the word of God and watch the fruitfulness it will produce in your life. You have the promise right here. And there are many more things to come in the parables that Jesus teaches, but particularly the fruitfulness of the word of God and what it does in our lives. Trust that what Jesus is saying will be fulfilled. Amen? Amen. So we'll pick up at uh, verse 30 next week. Will you stand with me and we'll pray? Father, uh, we are grateful. We thank you for this place and for the time and for the opportunity and for your word. And we ask that you would minister to us, Lord, that your word would have its fruitfulness. Not our intentions, Lord, not the things that we think or we desire or we want to see fulfilled. Lord, we bow and surrender to your will and your wishes. And we ask that you would cause your kingdom to come and your will to be done in us and through us and by us. In Jesus' name, amen.